The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed. And I'm Valerie Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational stories of recovery. Together, we represent several decades of struggle which makes us uniquely qualified to talk about many aspects of psychiatric diagnoses and treatment. Our knowledge is up close and personal. As we travel together, we will delve into subjects such as depression, anxiety and personality disorders, eating and substance use disorders, and dual diagnoses. We will discuss the tough topics such as self-harm and suicide. Other episodes will even examine the impact of the pandemic and economic downturn. Now, we are action-oriented and focus on treatment options, coping strategies and skills, goal-setting, relationships, and mindfulness. We hope to support you into recovery or support you as you support others. We are not a substitute for qualified counseling or other mental health resources. We are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. Experts through our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey. We live in recovery. So can you. Well, Helen, here we are on our first episode of our podcast. I looked at our notes and, you know, we've been working on this for five months. Well, I think that um, uh, five months uh, is a good amount of time. And I, because I'm not feeling perfectly prepared today, this being my first time out of the shoot. Um, but I think that what we discovered and one reason that we needed that time is because, first of all, we have a huge body of knowledge between us you know, decades of, of uh, illness and treatment and recovery uh, that we have both achieved. And secondly, I think that we, um, in, a, in an odd kind of way, want to honor what we know. Um, it's become something that I am proud of what I know, and I know that you are too. And I think we hope to do it justice here. And that's maybe one of the reasons that we are feeling or I'm feeling a little bit of pressure today. Well, 
I love all of what you said. And we do know a lot about recovery. We fought for it. And we do indeed want to share our hope, our stories, our inspiration. And let's just delve right into it because our topic today is the concept of recovery. I'm going to also share my mental health journey of struggle and recovery today. And next episode, Helen, you will share yours. Such an inspirational story that you have as well. Recovery is a powerful concept, one that many people, while in a mental health crisis, can't even conceive of. And that's why sharing our stories of recovery, our recovery journal journeys is vital. I have an anecdote from a class you and I taught, Helen, and there was a person, one of the class participants, who was listening as we introduced the first topic of that class, which was recovery. And as she was listening to us talk about this concept, she was crying. We noticed she was crying, and one of us said, you know, are you all right? What's going on? And she said that she had never associated the word recovery with her mental health journey. It was a powerful moment. It was. It was. And I think that it was a a moment, maybe, I hope it was some kind of turning point for her to finally have that concept, you know, presented to her in a way that she could could grasp it. Right. I, I could so relate to what she was saying because... I know when I was in my crisis, I had no concept of recovery. I had no idea of when or how I would get better. I just felt hopeless and lost. At that point, my life was just darkness and pain, and it seemed like there was no way out. Well, I flat out didn't believe that I would recover, and it upset me when people even mentioned it. I could get no relief from the suffering and no treatment was working. And I thought that my, uh, that my life was hopeless. Right. And, you know, another reason I think people can't um, grasp the concept of recovery sometimes uh, or relate to it when other people are talking about it is because the definition of recovery is so different to each person. It's such an individual concept. And, you know, I was once asked on a panel, the question, what are the milestones of recovery? And I had to be careful not to chuckle because the answer is that the milestones are so individual. The milestones of recovery can be anything from taking a shower to returning to work, from opening your mail to going back to school. Or maybe even starting a podcast. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I have a definition that I like very much. It's from SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Agency, which is the big federal agency that deals with these issues. And what they say is, recovery is a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. I love that definition. And I know you and I both have our own definitions, and mine is having a healthy and loving relationship with myself. And from that, everything else healthy and loving flows. So here's mine. For me, recovery involves independence, work, community, values, 
purpose, and fulfillment, giving to others without sacrificing myself. Now, that's a pretty uh, full definition of recovery, and frankly, one that I didn't make until I was in recovery because I couldn't see the full picture. Um, I do remember that my first thought about recovery was I must learn to tolerate daily living because I just couldn't tolerate being alive. Uh, So you can see I had a long struggle ahead of me. But what I learned is that recovery was made of many things. It was almost, it was like a mosaic. You know, you have like little chips and some of them are, you know, little pieces and some of them don't match. And you just begin to sort of put them together. And it took me a long, long time. But what I finally was able to create was something that was large and substantial and strong. And it's fortified me ever since. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. That's a beautiful analogy to think of recovery as a mosaic and putting the pieces together into a a life to get our lives back as we begin our journey into recovery. And there's another definition from that same workshop we taught. And the student said, recovery means I'm living a life filled with health, balance, and happiness. I'm not worried about being in a state of crisis or not believing I'll ever see the sunrise again. It means I am whole and living my life to a full potential, to my full capabilities. Yeah, she was an extraordinary woman. And I think if if people knew how far she had come before she could make that statement, it, it, would, it, would, it would really be impressive. Yes, and statements like that, as she described, and all those recovery definitions described lives that uh, filled with health, balance, and happiness makes me think about the amount of work required to achieve a life like that and to continue to live a life like that. And that brings us to the topic of active recovery, that recovery requires action and ongoing action that we have to work every day, sometimes moment by moment, to stay mentally healthy. And I know both of us have what we call a daily wellness plan. And I am going to tell my story later. And I have an extensive and detailed plan that I'm going to talk about when I do tell my story. But Helen, I know yours is a a really wonderful strategy. And so why don't you share yours? Well, I'd like to. um, What happened to me uh, that was, uh, was a doctor said to me, Years ago, action is all. And I, it, it just I really stuck with me. I couldn't do anything about it for many, many years. Um, but then I learned from that that there's another thing that is action begets action. And this has been, in a way, the driving force between my strategy for um, daily living, because I don't do daily living. I think it's incredibly hard. So anyway, here are some of my strategies. 
proper self-care, that's diet, exercise, and sleep. Self-soothing, I like reading in bed and music when I'm feeling really bad. Journal, um, it allows me to connect each day the story of my life so it doesn't seem like total chaos. Relationships, healthy relationships with myself and others. Giving back and accepting help. I'm good at giving back. I am terrible at accepting help. I can't even ask for it very often, so I'm still working on that. Structure and people in my life every day. This may be the bottom line for me. Using skills to keep me from slipping back into the abyss. And trying to be a force for inspiration in the world around me. Uh, In the theater, uh, there's someone called the life force character. And this person comes on the stage and, um, and galvanizes everyone else, you know, and they're full of enthusiasm and excitement about whatever's coming next, about, about life itself. And I don't know what else I'm going to become in, in life. I don't have a crystal ball. But I do believe that I can be this for other people, and I'm determined to stay that. You are a life force. Absolutely. You are a force of inspiration in my life and such a dear friend. So you're on that one. You are a life force. Well, thank you. You know, Valerie, I wanted to mention that you and I prefer the term live in recovery and not recovered. Because for me, as I keep saying, so much of recovery is action and choice. and It's a daily activity in the present, you know, the present day, the present moment. And recovered is in the past tense. It sounds to me like, oh, yes, and then I recovered and my life has been a day at the beach ever since. When it doesn't apply to the ongoing challenges of living in recovery that you and I have been through and want to talk about in these podcasts. Right. It's what we're talking about, this daily wellness plan, it's uh, living it, living that plan. And I loved what you said about action is all. Action begets action. Because I had to learn that I could not think my way into right action. I had to act my way into right thinking. And those are the actions of my daily life. And it's easier said than done. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. It does. And one of the reasons it takes um, daily practice is that recovery is not linear. We talk about reoccurrence. We talk about reoccurrence, you and I do, rather than relapse. Because in a lifelong mental health condition, which uh, is indeed lifelong, there is often a reoccurrence of symptoms. And the word relapse is a negative term to me. And I know um, you and I both think relapse is somewhat judgmental. Yeah, I think it is. And um, I like uh, reoccurrence because to me, it gives the impression that you can it's not it's not so abrupt and so dramatic and that a reoccurrence is something that you can incorporate into uh in, into into you know your life and especially if you're not looking at it in a linear fashion you know right i'm going i'm going straight up staircase stair steps to heaven you know it's just it's not like that 
No, it's not. And research shows that it's most likely um, to happen, that particularly in sobriety, it sometimes takes steps forward and steps backwards. And that I know for me, that was true. I first went to treatment in October of 1994, and my sobriety date is October of 1999. It was a long five-year path. To get uh, clean and sober, I would get a couple of months and then have a reoccurrence for three or four days, get a month, have another reoccurrence. But when I had enough uh, exposure to a 12-step program and did the things required and eventually did get enough treatment combined with the other things I just mentioned, I did finally get clean and sober. With my mental health conditions, um, I had three reoccurrences of symptoms since uh, I started on the journey of recovery. One was brought about by work stress and trauma when I was about three years into my uh, sobriety journey. It was a workplace full of uh, stress and there was there were some traumatic incidences that happened there and triggered my symptoms of the post-traumatic stress disorder I live with. The second incidence of symptoms reoccurring happened um, after my mother's death. And then the third one was at the beginning of the pandemic. I went into a depression because of the anxiety and the stress and the upheaval in my life caused by the pandemic. Well, there's one thing that triggers me uh, into the ozone and, and can set me back. And it's, it can be quite a battle to pull myself out of it. And that is betrayal, betrayal from key figures in my life. And uh, I have to really watch it and I'm, I'm better at it now, but it's, it still is, uh, it, it just uh, sends me off. Um, now there's also what you were mentioning, something more recent and something that's still bothering me well, it's been now almost a year, which is the pandemic and the social unrest and upheaval and the economic downturn and the horrible state that so many millions of Americans are in. Um, it has, has really been disturbing. And I know that the isolation and the distancing are necessary and I respect them and adhere to them. But the isolation is, is terrible, I think, for many people who have mental health conditions and the stress and depression have been real problems for me to to, to overcome. Uh, some days I had to fight for my very survival. Now, Valerie has an extraordinary story of her own survival, which she's going to tell us. But first, why storytelling? Well, we are both dedicated to the value of storytelling as a major source of inspiration, practical advice and skills, and hope. We have learned that our own stories have values to others. When I first started giving um, these, uh, telling my story in public, um, after one of my first speeches, a woman came up to me and she was weeping, and she said, you have given me more hope than I have felt in years. So Lena Waithe, a very wise woman, said, I'm telling my story so that others might see fragments of themselves. So here we have Valerie's story. And uh, Valerie, you and I are close friends. Yes. And we have presented our stories dozens of times before audiences of all kinds. 
But for this podcast, the storytelling is different and far more intimate. It's just a completely different process. And it's perhaps difficult for us as we talk to each other unscripted about these issues. We're moving from speeches to conversations. Right. And so it may not seem effortless at first. And I know on my part, but we just, uh, I'm, I'm begging for everyone's patience. <laughs> so let's start. Uh, I want to ask you, first of all, um, I like to know the backstory of a person's life. What were things like for you before your illnesses? I know you had a stellar career. Well, I love that you say stellar because I, <laughs> I say successful. Um, Yes, I started out uh, with a career in advertising, marketing, public relations. And after I had an abrupt end to that career because of my mental health conditions, I became a teacher and curriculum writer, a high school teacher, and then a curriculum writer. What, um, what is one of your proudest achievements? I like to think of an early achievement. Um, I have many that I will share, uh, but an early one would be my college experience. Uh, Kind of sets a pattern for showing that I have tenacity, which came in uh, very handy later in my struggles. I was raised as a transplanted Texan. My parents moved from Houston to New Orleans when my mom was pregnant with me. And I got back to Texas as fast as I could. I graduated from high school early at 17, came to the University of Texas, got into the UT Business School as an out-of-state student, not easy to do. And I was completely self-sufficient through my entire college career. I worked my way through school. That's pretty impressive for those of us, especially who didn't. Um, So when did the illness begin? Early. I began my struggles with my mental health conditions in the seventh grade. I moved to a new city after a series of traumas, and the move to the new city took me to a new school. I became very withdrawn after that move and that start, rough start at a new school. I lost a lot of weight. I began to have a series of stomach problems, and my mom took me to the doctor. The doctor ran a series of tests, and they all came back normal. But over the course of a couple of weeks of running the test and waiting for the results, the doctor watched me continue to deteriorate. He told my mom that I was depressed. My parents never mentioned the word depression again, and I got no treatment. You know... I think there's been a study that shows that a person can go as long as 30 years before the, you know, the sort of the onset of the illness to the time that they get treatment. And which is staggering. um, But how what kind of impact did that have on you? I think the fact that I didn't get treatment is what led me to find drugs and alcohol. The summer after I had that first run-in with depression, I found drugs and alcohol the summer after eighth grade, and I successfully self-medicated for a very long time. I was overachieving outwardly while suffering miserably on the inside, and my complete breakdown came 20 years later 
when I was in my 30s. I was very successful at the time. I had been working 70-hour weeks for seven years. And the stress finally tipped the scale to my breakdown. The breakdown began by walking out of work in the middle of the day or calling in sick and not showing up at all. I would tell myself I had the flu and just retreat from reality. I was in a complete state of denial about the fragile condition of my mental health. So when did you uh, actually um, uh, hit the wall? Was it in in your work situation? You'd functioned brilliantly for so long. I did. I, I was in a very good place in my career. And I unraveled it slowly. I was um, falling apart at work and falling apart at home. I was falling apart at home, not showing up for my kids' sporting events, other school events. I didn't show up for one of my son's birthday parties. And I found out later that he told his dad a little boy needs his mommy. There was one school event I did show up for. It was a Mother's Day event at my son's elementary school. The kids had been asked to draw a picture of their mom doing her favorite thing. And there were pictures of moms cooking, gardening, playing tennis. My son drew a picture of me napping. There were a lot of signs that my family missed. And there were the things at work that led to my work crash. Um, My manic episodes set in during this time, and I would go from um, these manic episodes where I would do things like work from before breakfast. I'd leave before the kids had breakfast until um, 10 o'clock at night. I would do things like sod the entire backyard and put up 12 jars of grape jam in one day. I hate that kind of yard work, and I had never before made grape jam, so I was having (laughs) these manic episodes at work and at home at the same time. I was completely out of control with my drug and alcohol abuse during this time. I was smoking a joint before my shower in the morning so no one would smell it at work. I was drinking hot tequila out of my glove box in the middle of the day. I was taking 14 to 16 hydrocodone a day. And that complete crash eventually came. It happened at work. I was found curled up in a ball on the floor of the bathroom. Well, I know that that was the the professional breakdown, but in terms of your your personal life, was was there a major turning point? There was. There was a major turning point that I had a series of events that led to the turning point. That night after the breakdown at work, I ended up in the emergency room and there was an 18-month period that caused the eventual turning point. But there was a long journey And during that, um, after that period in the emergency room that night, I began an 18-month psychiatric crisis that took me five years to crawl out of. During that 18-month crisis, I was correctly diagnosed 
with bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and substance use disorder. During that 18 months, I had seven psychiatric hospitalizations for a total of four months inpatient. I was engaging in extensive self-harm, and I attempted suicide. The seventh psychiatric hospitalization and the suicide attempt is what led to the turning point. It was during that seventh psychiatric hospitalization that my husband said I couldn't come home. He said I had to get mentally stable and sober. My husband wasn't abandoning me. He was protecting himself and our children. I went and lived in a sober house. I was 36 years old. I'd been married for 13 years. I had two kids, and I was living in a sober house. I had lost my career. My family was slipping away. My heart and my mind were broken. That was the turning point. I began to fight for my recovery. Um, you mentioned the dealing with sobriety and, and beginning to, to, to kind of, that you felt like that was the initial step that you had to take. But how did you feel about being diagnosed with a mental illness? Because to me, I think in the eyes of society, they can be two very different things. And could you accept that? I, uh, I couldn't for a long time. I knew that I had to get sober. I knew that sobriety was just the bottom line, that nothing was going to get better until I got sober. But even with all the consequences that were, I was facing, I still hadn't completely accepted that I had a mental illness. I had a funny conversation with my doctor. He said... You have a journalism degree. You know how to do research. Go get some. Go do some research. So I did, and I discovered that I have a medical illness. Mental illness is a medical illness. Pain is pain, whether it's in the mind or in the body. And I discovered that I have a medical condition that can be treated by medication. I have a mood disorder, and if I take the correct mood stabilizer, my mood stabilizes. But acceptance of my mental health condition meant that I accepted what recovery looks like. And recovery is a lifelong wellness plan. So this is Tell the me, Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask you, what are some of the treatment methods and coping skills that you developed once you began to accept the fact that this is what you were going to have to do? Yeah, this is the treatment plan. Uh, this is the wellness plan that we talked about. And I loved yours. And I do have a plan <laughs> that I follow. And the foundation of that treatment plan has always been therapy and medication and sobriety and medication. I guess my best guess is that I've taken uh, 30 to 35 different medications since I began taking them in 1993. I currently take four plus supplements prescribed by my psychiatrist. And the journey to the right mix was through many combinations of medicines and many side effects. But the most important thing I had to learn about side effects was I had to learn to stick them out because I would never know if the medication was going to work or not if I didn't. The other part, therapy, I've had individual therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, 
trauma therapy, art therapy, drama therapy, music therapy. I've had a lot of therapy, family therapy, couples therapy, but I've needed it all. Well, that's that's an amazing um, uh, amount of, uh, of of therapy, but I've, I've had a lot myself and you can pick up things from each different approach uh, to treatment. Now, tell me, um, in the midst of all this, how difficult has it been to hold on to your sobriety? Um, well, even with 21 years of sobriety, I have had, um, like I said, some, uh, even with 21 years of sobriety, I still work on it every day. I still, as one of my coping mechanisms, go to two or three 12-step meetings a week, and that is one of my coping strategies. Other coping strategies uh include the most important thing, starting my day in prayer and meditation with uh, quiet time and readings each morning. I also exercise nearly every day, walking several miles with my sister most of the time, my biggest cheerleader and supporter after my husband. She and my husband are um, the backbone of my support. I also have to sleep eight hours a night. My psychiatrist says sleep and sobriety are the cornerstones of recovery with bipolar disorder. I have to stay socially active. Isolation is dangerous for me. I like to say my mind is like a dangerous neighborhood. I shouldn't go there alone. (laughs) During this time of social distancing, though, I've really had to work hard to not be socially isolated. I need human contact and have fought for it any way I can during this pandemic. I have to eat right another coping strategy and i do a pretty good job of it except for sugar i have a love-hate relationship with sugar but you know what compared to what i used to put in my body am i really going to worry about dessert (laughs) i also have to manage my stress one of the uh, precursors to all of my major uh, blips in recovery has been stress so i usually manage my stress by keeping a tight calendar And usually my calendar is full and I manage it by not letting my calendar get overloaded. But when the pandemic hit, the resulting stay at home order came and my calendar was suddenly blank, nearly blank. This upheaval, wow, this upheaval in my life sent me into a depression for the first time in more than a decade. And fortunately, I have all these coping skills I'm talking about and I fought my way out of that dark place. But Medication change was also necessary, as, as well as increased frequency of therapy. There's another uh, element of your life in, uh, where you've taken quite a leadership role, and that's been in the, um, the battle, again, in fighting stigma. Yes. Can, yes. You, can you talk about some of the work that you've done? I have. It's one of the most important things I I do. Um, I am an active volunteer, speaker, uh, presenter for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Central Texas. And I was silent for a long time. The stigma that surrounds mental health conditions kept me from sharing my story or my diagnoses for many years. But by volunteering with NAMI Central Texas, I've been able to speak to so many different audiences. I've given newspaper and television interviews. My NAMI video is on YouTube. Um, 
the fact that the volunteering was available on Zoom so early in the pandemic is one of the things that uh, helped me come out of my depression. Well, you've made a huge contribution, and I know you will continue to do that. And uh, I, for well, all of us are very grateful for what what the, the hours and the days that you give. Um, so, what about your life today? My life today. You're in recovery, and uh, what, what what's it like? What are your successes? My overall success will always be the ability to maintain this beautiful life I've been given been given because these successes are hard earned and they're held on to with lots of work and lots of gratitude. My biggest success is first of all, I'm here. I'm here in two ways. I'm here with you, Helen, doing our podcast and I'm here with the listeners. I'm here in the biggest way I'm alive because I nearly wasn't when I attempted suicide. The biggest blessings of my recovery are my family relationships that healed. My relationships with my husband and my children are precious to me. I have two children. My daughter is 36 years old. She is a development officer with the Public Policy Foundation. And my 33-year-old son is a financial analyst with the hedge fund in Manhattan. And I am so proud of them. But you know what? We suffer together, but we heal together. And our relationships are truer and richer and stronger and deeper because of what we went together, went through together. And my kids are the loving, capable, compassionate adults they are because of their experiences with my illness. Another success is my 37-year marriage to my husband. It's filled with love and laughter and fun and mutual support. And yeah, we had to work to get here with counseling required to overcome the trauma of my crisis, but we did the work and we are reaping the rewards. I have mundane successes that I never take for granted. I got up this morning when the alarm went off. I took a shower this morning. I did my hair, put on my makeup. There were days and days in a row when I didn't do do those things when I was struggling with my depression. And I have a rather unusual success. My family has a ranch in South Texas where I love to walk and work and sit on the porch and look at the wildlife. And one of the things we've done down there is really work to develop our quail habitat. And we are now rewarded with many more coveys of quail than when we started. And we can hear the quail calling when we drive and walk the ranch. And every once in a while, we're given the gift of seeing a covey of quail with little chicks. This success means so much to me because when I was sick, my world was so ugly. I never thought I would be well enough to actually impact the beauty of the world. And I saved the best success for last. And Helen, I know you know what it is because (laughs) you have to listen to this all the time. I have four precious little grandchildren, and I mean little. The oldest one is just two and a half. And I was at the birth of those grandchildren, and I have the blessing of staying with them when my kids are away. And if I had not been clean and sober, and stable with my mental health conditions, I would not have been invited to their births and certainly would not be allowed to take care of them. 
but I was invited and I do take care of them. I am their Nana. And that's those successes. All of that is the beauty of recovery. Oh, Valerie, what an amazing journey you've been on and uh, what an amazing outcome you have, you have fashioned for yourself through all this hard work. Um, it took a lot of courage to tell your story, and I, for one, uh, really appreciate it. I know anyone who hears it feels that way because it's so uplifting. You also are great because you mention skills and you give advice and hope for overcoming such uh, terrible illnesses. So I really want to thank you and, uh, and tell you what it, thank you for being such an inspiration to me. Thanks, Helen. Now you're welcome, darling. It's the truth. So now um, we're going to go to something that we'll be doing in every episode, which is Valerie will lead us in a mindfulness exercise. Now, if you're not familiar with it, um, mindfulness is the centuries-old practice where a person develops skills and methods to control difficult thoughts and feelings. Uh, In a way, it's easier to do it than to talk about it. So, Valerie, um, uh, here we go. Thanks. Tonight, today, right now, we're going to practice diaphragmatic breathing. And it's a mindfulness exercise that is a technique research shows we can feel more relaxed by doing, less stressed, and more in control of challenging situations. Now, usually I lead this exercise by suggesting everyone get seated and close their eyes. But since you're probably running, driving, doing laundry, or out on your walk, I won't suggest you close your eyes. Helen and I use diaphragmatic breathing throughout our days whenever we want to get calm and centered. So that's how we're going to practice it today from wherever you are, whatever you're doing. To get started, let's all take a deep breath and let it out. Did you perhaps notice your shoulders going up and your chest inflating? Well, that's what's called chest breathing and it's inefficient. Diaphragmatic breathing allows us to breathe more deeply and slowly, bringing in oxygen more efficiently. So let's try it. I want you to imagine you have a balloon in your stomach that you'll inflate with your breathing. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to inhale through your nose, push your stomach out, hold your breath for a second, then exhale by pulling your stomach in and letting the air escape from your mouth. So let's try it. Inhale through your nose while you push your stomach out, and hold your breath. Now exhale by pulling your stomach in, letting the air escape from your mouth. Try it again. Inhale through your nose so that the balloon in your stomach expands. Hold your breath. Blow it out, pulling that balloon in. Exhale. No, do it again. Inhale through your nose, pushing that balloon out. Now exhale through your mouth, blow it out, pulling that balloon in. One more time together. Inhale through your nose. 
Push that balloon out in your stomach. Hold it for a second. Now through your mouth, blow it out. Pulling that balloon in. Try it on your own. Inhale. One, two, three, four. Hold it. One, two. Exhale. One, two, three, four. In. One, two, three, four. Hold. One, two. Exhale. One, two, three. That's it. That's diaphragmatic breathing. It centers and calms me, and I use it if I feel anxious or stressed and as part of my mindfulness and meditation practice. Thank you for doing this diaphragmatic breathing exercise with me. Well, Valerie, uh, thank you for doing it because this is uh, I'm very relaxed, and it's the first time I felt that way today. So anyway, um, thank you. And uh, Here we go. This has been a wonderful experience launching our podcast together. This is new and at times difficult, but I can't think of anyone I'd rather be on this journey with, Helen. I also want to thank our listeners for sharing their time with us. Helen and I are honored you did so. We hope to have demonstrated how unique recovery is to each and every individual. This week, Valerie's story serves as evidence that the pursuit and maintenance of recovery are a process and one that moves in a cyclical manner. Setbacks and reoccurrences can be incorporated into the productive cycle to a better life. Expectations of a linear course can be counterproductive and deeply disappointing. We can see this clearly in the stories of others. On our next episode, we're going to delve further into the concept of recovery, including the stages of recovery, and Helen will share her inspirational journey of struggle and recovery with her own mental health conditions. It's an episode you don't want to miss. Until then, we wish you health and hope. And I'm leaving you with my favorite word, onward. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.